This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This week, Deitch goes head-to-head with the Premier League's other longest-serving manager, knowing that a win would take them eight points clear of the relegation zone. This is the Known and Never podcast. Hello and welcome to the No Name Never podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Bromley, returning from my mid-season warm weather training away from the UK um, and back to host our lovely podcast. I hope you all missed me, but um, thanks again to producer Matt, who stepped in admirably last week, and to Dave and Robbie, who held the fort and allowed me to have a little bit of a, a mid-season break. Um, we are back this week to talk about an absolute fantastic and very much needed win away at Bournemouth and I am joined this evening by a jam-packed starstruck panel. I'm very delighted to introduce Statman Dave, regular panellist Robbie Kopak and the fan favourite friend of the show, our friend Tom. Guys, welcome, welcome, welcome. Hiya. Good evening. Good evening. So, in, indeed. Good evening, Tom. <laughs> we, we see Tom was such a hit last week that we had to invite you back. And I think you're just going to become a bit of a regular feature in our show because we do always enjoy talking to you. Um, so let's dive straight in because we've got a lot to talk about this week. Now, what a roller coaster of emotions this season has been. And I think um, we were probably all expecting it to be quite a tough game last week. Um, out of these first four games that we all realised that we needed to get some points from. I think Bournemouth was maybe one that I was a little bit concerned about because you never really know which Eddie Howe side is going to turn up. The one that is going to fire eight or nine goals past you and not let you get a kick or the one that can't defend for toffee. But as it stands, the Clarets were classy, they were fantastic, they were direct, they were dominant, and they came away with a 3-1 win. This gives us the league double over Bournemouth this season, propels us to 14th in the table, with dizzy heights of 14th, puts us on 36 points, and more importantly, eight points clear of Cardiff, who are currently taking up that last relegation place. Um, Tom, let's come to you first, because out of the panellists today, you were the only one of us who actually went to, to Bournemouth, which, quite frankly, is a heroic trip to go all the way down to the East Coast when we've got such an important run of games coming up to the end of the season. Um, what was it? Just talk us through what the atmosphere was like. I mean, did you get a sense of 
nervousness before the games? What did the fans expect us to win or to lose? And you know, was there any talk about the pending relegation threat? Oh, I've got to say, it didn't feel like uh, we were we were relegation threatened. Uh, maybe the weather had something to do with that. It was quite nice and sunny down there. Uh, Bournemouth's one of those grounds where you always get a friendly welcome. You know, it's not one where you're worried about going in home pubs or anything like that. Stewards are all really nice, all really chatty. And I think everyone who went was was quite optimistic. I think the result last week had a big bearing on that. Obviously, put ourselves in a good position beating Wolves. The fact that Cardiff didn't have a game this weekend, so there was no danger of us losing any ground. Obviously, if we'd have got beat, uh, we'd have lost the game. Uh, Cardiff would have had a game in hand, but with Cardiff losing two since we'd last played Wolves as well, uh, that pressure had receded a little bit. And I think everyone was pretty optimistic. Um, there didn't seem to be any nerves or anything before. Everyone uh, that I chatted to, everyone at the ground seemed reasonably confident we could get something. Uh, Bournemouth weren't in great form before. I think everyone on the podcast last week was fairly optimistic as well. Uh, so, yeah, it was a uh, an, an optimistic atmosphere. And uh, as the game showed, it proved to be a well-founded optimism. Yeah, it really did. And I think, I think what surprised most people more than anything is that we were as optimistic as we were. And Tom, you're quite right. I think that the the Wolves results made a massive difference to how we felt going into that game. But that's the first time this season that Bournemouth have, beat, have lost sorry, to any side outside the top six, which is an incredible um, start for them. You know, they're, just, they're usually very, very strong. Yeah, when I heard that uh, last week, I mean, I think uh, before the game, I would have took a point, definitely. Um, I suppose maybe that was partly why uh, the atmosphere wasn't too, well, it was quite optimistic as well, because the point would have still been a good result for us. So there wasn't as much pressure on us. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, as as bad form as Bournemouth have been in, they're, they're very difficult to beat at home. And especially when they got that early goal, you thought, uh, it's going to be a long afternoon. Um, the, you know, they didn't have to work particularly hard to get in front. Um, obviously, that, there hadn't been that much of the play at that point, but you still thought 1 mm, 0 down away against the team who's really good at home, it's going to take. Uh, you know, it's going to take some dragging back here. But uh, even then, you didn't really get any, you know, sometimes you might get a bit of stick from the crowd or, uh, you know, a few shouts, a bit of impatience, but there was none of that really. Um, I know Dyche has talked quite a lot about before about how the atmosphere at Turf more when we go behind, uh, there tends to be a bit of a calmness and a bit of a, a, an expectation that we've got what it takes to get back into the game. And it felt like that in the way end at Bournemouth as well. Uh, you know, the, there wasn't, like I said, there wasn't that pressure from the crowd uh, and the players didn't show any pressure or any nervousness either. So, yeah, yeah. Um, surprisingly, uh, probably given the circumstances, surprising how calm it was and surprising that that mentality was there. But, uh, yeah, really good to see. Yeah, I think it does help as well, doesn't it, that there was such a quick turnaround between going behind to that that bizarre own, well, that wasn't that bizarre, but that very unfortunate own goal that, that poor Barnes put in the back of the net, um, to actually turn it around and going 2-1 in front. Um, I think one of the things that, that maybe got me a little, um, not on edge as such, but just made me, um, I guess, do you know what? I'm nervous anyway. I'm, ner- I'm going to be nervous until we're mathematically safe. So when I was looking at the team sheet, Robert, I think um, one of the weird things that got me a bit jittery pre-game was that Phil Barsley obviously had that really weird injury where he gashed his leg or something in the in the, in the warm-up to the game and, and Matt Lawton came in. Now, you and I are both massive Matt Lawton fans. Um, but I... I know it sounds weird, but any change at the moment to the to the team news, to the way we approach the game, just made me really, really nervous. But actually, as it turned out, Lawton had an absolutely fantastic game. Yeah, coming into the back four as well after such a long period out, can I, I I guess that can be quite difficult because you're sort of away from that communication with the goalkeeper and stuff. 
Um, but he seemed to have a really solid game. He seemed back to the Matt Lawton of last season because uh, he come in. I think his last appearance was the Everton game on Boxing Day, and we all know how shambolic that performance was. Um, so he, he, yeah, he come back in and he seemed really calm, really assured at the back, and it was a really good defensive performance. Yeah, I think so too. And, and it's not just the performance of, of individuals. I think for for me, just the just the way that the entire team performed was just impressive. It looked like all of the demons from the early part of that season had been completely gone. And I think Rick Ford, um, one of our friends. One of our regular listeners, he put on Twitter after the game that he felt that it was actually the best performance of the season. Um, Dave, do you agree with that? Do you think that we basically pulled out the performance of the season right at the right time? Um, possibly. I mean, the uh, perhaps playing Bournemouth at that time was a, a good time to be playing them, as you said already. The uh, they tend to go out of the traps and uh, and get the points on the board early in the season. Um, maybe the second half of the season is a better time to uh, to play them. There, w- there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, about the uh, no other, no other top six side going there and uh, and beating them. One thing that is forgotten in that is that uh, Burnley did beat them uh, and, and went sixth. Burnley actually went up to sixth above Spurs when uh, when we won um, uh, uh, back last season in November, wasn't it, of uh, of last season? Um, but since then they've been they've been steady at home. They've been solid and. Uh, they struggled other than, well, other teams have struggled there. So it makes it all the more important that Burnley managed to get the uh, the three points. And, yeah, I mean, really good uh, for the strikers. Again, both strikers being on the score sheet. We said already how important that partnership of, uh, of Ashley Barnes and Chris Wood up front has been. And they both got on the score sheet, albeit Ashley Barnes getting on the score sheet at the, at the wrong end in the first five minutes. Um, making amends for that later in the game and scoring at the uh, at the other end, um, and again performances across the pitch as well. Um, Matt Lowton um, stepping back into the side, and you never know he'd been away. Um, uh, Ashley Westwood again with a really good performance, and uh, and Dwight McNeil again just seems to get better and better every week. Um, you know he's up against a, a, a player. Who's you know Klein is on on loan from Liverpool, but he's an international quality player. He was taken off at half time. You know it's a, a testament perhaps to uh, to what sort of player Dwight McNeil is that uh, Eddie Howe was forced into that change. Yeah, I think we all had a bit of a laugh at that. He didn't he didn't handle McNeil at all, did he, in that first half? And I think it's like you say when when somebody's had an absolute shocker in the first half and they get hauled off at half time, you it's always uh, you, you just can't mask that, can you? That <laughs> the manager may as well say you've had a shocker, get off the pitch. Um, well, let's stick with performances then before we go on to analyse the game in a little bit more depth because um, I've seen so many different combinations from you all on social media following the game as to who exactly were the most outstanding players, and I think that's usually a good testament to just how good a team performance it was if that everybody has got different players who they thought shone and um, Rick Ford who I had mentioned earlier who said that it was the best performance of the season he'd actually singled out McNeil Matt Lawton and Ashley Westwood to have extra sausages for their breakfast in the morning because of their performances um, however for most of the media that I've seen and, and match of the day and sky and a lot of the newspapers they they put particular praise on wood and bombs and um, sticking with you first then Dave who Obviously, you've mentioned a couple of players there, but if you had to call your man of the match or men of the match or combination of the match, who would you have picked? Um, possibly Ashley Westwood, I think, particularly, uh, you know, you got on the score sheet as well. Um, he just seems to be Mr. Consistent for us this season going through. Um, you know, the, we, we, we're looking, well, the club, aren't they? They're looking at who's going to be uh, player of the player of the year. 
got the awards um, night coming up um, towards the end of the season. Um, and on the basis, perhaps, of the uh, matches across the season, he's perhaps been Mr. Consistent. I think he's, he's one of those, you know, he's, he's always going to give you um, at least a 7 out of 10 and, and you know, it uplifted that as it seemed to on, on Saturday in terms of his performance. So probably Ashley Westwood, I think, in terms of uh, his all-round play and driving force in midfield. OK, I'll handle that. Um Actually, that's quite a good point. And Dave did prompt me before we came on uh, this evening just to remind me that the club has opened voting for player of the season this season. So let's combine this feature into two because that probably seems like a good natural place to put it in this week's show. So obviously you you said what I want from all of you, obviously, is just to say who you thought played particularly well against Bournemouth, but maybe how that sits with player of the season. Um, so Dave, can I just, just clarify that then? Obviously, you felt that Westwood had the best game on Saturday. Has he got your vote then for player of the season? Uh, no, I'd, I've thought long and hard about it for player of the season. I've actually gone for Dwight McNeil. I've uh, voted on the uh, on the club website and done that. I think he's, he's not really been the second half of the season until he's come into the side, established himself in there. But I think he's been the difference. You, know, you talk about Tom Heaton coming back in. You talk about you know what's gone on in the side since uh, you know the the, the debacle on uh, on Boxing Day. I think in terms of his driving force, um, his attacking impetus. Dwight McNeil has been the difference in the second half of the season. So, although there's a nagging doubt at the back of your mind saying, well, you, know, you can't give it to someone who's only really played half the season. He had a few bit parts early on in the season, didn't really get into it until the second half. But I think even taking that into account, I'm, uh, I'm going for Dwight McNeil as my player of the season. Excellent. Robert, let's come to you next. Um, who do you think particularly shone on Saturday um, against Bournemouth and how does that sit with your vote for player of the season? Uh, I've, I'm going to give someone a bit of praise at the weekend who I think has got a fair bit of stick this season and that's Jack Cork. Um, I think if we are going to praise Ashley Westwood in the middle of the park, I think Jack Cork was equally equally as good. I thought he was solid throughout Brought play up really well, and I, I, I just think he's got a fair bit of stick this season, been a little bit inconsistent. So I think it's only fair that we give him uh, praise where it's due, praise where it's due. Um, in regards to the player of the year, again, for such an underwhelming season, it, it's kind of a little bit of a tough one as well. I was stuck between I think Charlie Taylor. I think his development's been really good. Dwight McNeil again. I just want to echo what Dave said, but I just think Ashley Westwood just edges it for me just purely because he's probably been our most consistent performer. I can't really think of a bad game he's had this season. And I just think he's just stepped up into that Joey Barton role, which you've described before, Natalie, where he just seems to have adapted his game so much in the last, probably even in the last 12, 18 months or so. I think he's just developed so much. I think he was a bit of an underwhelming signing when he signed from Villa a couple of years ago. But he's probably now one of the first names on the team sheet. So I just think the whole journey as a whole, just I just think just edges it just for me. Excellent. So we've got one vote so far for McNeil, one for Westwood. Um, Tom, same questions to you. Bournemouth and how that sits with Player of the Year. Uh, so I think a couple of the, probably three leapt out for me for the Bournemouth game. That's two of them we spoke about already. Westwood uh, uh, was probably my man of the match just about doing it at both ends, doing it for 90 minutes. So there was obviously the goal and the assist in the first half, but also even at the end of the game, he was throwing himself in the way, winning tackles, that one that he blocked with his face in the penalty area the last couple of minutes. That's just what you want to see in the last couple of minutes. Really breaks the tension. So Westwood just picked it for me. Thought McNeil had a good game. Uh, first half, he was the best player on the pitch by a mile. Just faded a little bit in the second half. Didn't see as much of the ball. 
Uh, but someone I think deserves a lot of praise for the second half uh, and the first half, Chris Wood. Um, another one who gets a bit of stick and another one who is very inconsistent and has been this season. What I liked about Wood's performance on Saturday, not just the goal and the assist, um, off the ball, he worked so hard. He stayed on side, which is obviously a criticism that he gets a lot, but there's a lot of balls over the top for him to chase. There's only once or twice in the whole game where he got caught off and uh, he gave Mepham an absolutely torrid time. Uh, he really preyed on his weakness. He bullied him. You don't always see that from Wood. He's a big bloke, but he doesn't always put himself about that much. He doesn't always impose himself on the centre-half, but he did that side of the game fantastically well, uh, as well as getting the goal and as well as getting the assist. So I think he deserves a big uh, a lot of praise for, for his performance on Saturday. I thought he was really, really good. But uh, for player of the season, I was torn between two. Um, I think Keaton and McNeil have been really, really good, but it's only been for half a season. So for me, they just from, in my opinion, they don't quite qualify for player of the season overall. Uh, I think I'd be torn between uh, the same two that Robbie said, which was Taylor and Westwood, and, and for the same reasons, because I think they've been the two that have been the most consistent. Taylor, if we were voting young player of the year or most improved player of the year, probably be difficult to look beyond Taylor. Uh, I think he's really stepped up this season. He's really improved, uh, deservedly in the team ahead of, uh, of Stephen Ward now. And, and you'd hope uh, that, that that's the left-back position sorted for a good few years now. I've uh, been really impressed with Taylor this season. But uh, again, I lean just towards Ashley Westwood. Uh, I think similar reasons, uh, as Robbie said, and, and Dave mentioned earlier, it's very, very rare that it'll give you anything less than a 7 out of 10. And the amount of assists he's got this season as well, really underrated. I think he's got uh, as many as Goodmanson, maybe even one or two more than Goodmanson. And uh, what we've seen of him in previous seasons, he puts himself apart. He always works hard, but there hasn't always been that end product. And he's chipped in with a couple of goals the last few weeks and seven or eight assists. And that the impact that that's had, especially on a team like us who don't score that many goals, has been massive. So, yeah, I think for me, it's difficult to look beyond Westwood and I've voted for him on the website as well. Excellent stuff. Well, I think there's not an awful lot really for me to add to that. I, I completely agree with all of your comments. Um, interestingly, I think that both on Saturday, I thought Ben, me and James Tarkovsky had a pretty solid game, which seems strange to add to the mix, given that Bournemouth didn't create a massive amount in our box, but um, a couple of chances when they were called on, they did really um, step up and put some important blocks in there. But also I think their um, work for Wood's goal, particularly just that the space that they created for him, I thought was pretty impressive. Um, I agree with Tom. Um, I thought I was singling out Chris Wood for particular praise on Saturday. I thought he had probably one of his strongest um, games that I've seen him in a Burnley shirt. So that was impressive. Um I have not yet voted for my player of the year and I am still undecided. I do this every year. I can never decide. Unless there's a standout star, then I always really struggle. Um, For me, it's between three because I'm indecisive. Um, And all three have been mentioned. It's between McNeil, Westwood and Taylor. Um, I suspect I'm probably going to end up settling on Westwood for two reasons. Number one, McNeil has only come in from the second half of the season. And as Tom rightly says, it kind of feels like a bit of a cheat to be able to um, call them as a full player of the season. Albeit, I completely, completely agree with um, Dave's assessment that his turnaround has been that much of an impact that it has probably been the difference between us staying up and, and going down. Um, not that I want to jinx it yet because we're not 100% safe, but we probably will be. Um, and I think what maybe gives it Westwood over Taylor is that, again, I completely agree with Tom, he's the most important, sorry, not most important, most improved player of the season. But 
he did have a shocker in some of those early games and particularly that Everton game of Boxing Day. So I feel like that can't really swing it for me for full players. So um, watch this space. I have yet to decide who my player of the season is, but I suspect it probably will be Westwood. Um, so let's move on, actually, start looking at this game in more depth. And, and you know, it, was, it was relatively incident-free, I thought, for um, such a dominant performance. Um thought Bournemouth were pretty poor. Um, let's go to you first, Robbie, and, and obviously just talk us through that own goal. Obviously, it was quite early on in the game uh, and poor Ashley Barnes just gets his head completely on the wrong side of that ball and, and fires it past Tom Heaton. Just just talk us through what happened with that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I don't know whether um, Ashley just was caught napping a little bit. He just seemed to get on the wrong side of um, Nathan Aki, wasn't it? I think you were marking and... I think maybe the, the deflection off, off Lerma may have caught him off guard. I just think he panicked a little bit and just tried to get his head to the ball first without really putting any direction on it. And it just went into the into the corner, unfortunately. Do you think it was a bit clumsy? I, I mean, I'm, I've been a bit torn as to whether to, to, to think about this because the first time I looked at it, my gut instinct was a bit like, oh, actually, that was a bit... It was a bit clumsy and perhaps it could have been avoided. Um, but then when I've looked at it a couple of, a couple of times since, I'm not sure that's really fair. Maybe it was just unavoidable. Yeah, he just, he just, to me, he just seemed to be, it just didn't seem natural the way it went in. It just didn't seem like a, a little mistake or anything. It just seemed like you were trying to make up for something and he panicked. That's how I read it. Were you in any way disappointed and have that kind of feeling of, oh God, here we go again. There's, there's been a few times this season where the Clarets have been um, punished for some slow starts, both both in the first half and second half of games. And it did kind of have that feeling at first where we just thought, oh God, here we go again. We're going to give ourselves a mountain to climb. Yeah, we, it very much reminded me of the opening 10 minutes we had at Watford, uh, I think it was back in January. And we, it took us like 10, 15 minutes to get going in that game. And we were lucky not to be behind then. It was that same kind of start where we couldn't really get a foothold in the game. And we seemed to be really like, uh, like penned in and we couldn't get out. But uh, it seems, but once the goal went in, it, it seemed we seemed to like regain focus. We need to, we finally got a foothold of the game and it would just it, like, kick up the arse we needed. Yeah, it really was. I mean, Tom, you mentioned this in the opening um, segment of this podcast this week, talking about the mental toughness and, and just the reaction to going a goal behind was, was really impressive. Yeah, it was... Uh... Just as you were, there was no kind of panic. There was no sort of change to the gameplay. Uh, it didn't. They, I mean, even yeah, especially it's not the biggest ground or anything like that. It didn't. It didn't even really feel like we were under any pressure or we gonna go behind or anything like that. And uh, kept playing the same way. Kept getting the ball out wide. Kept getting balls in the box. Uh, didn't shake us at all. And uh, that confidence is a big thing. I think it makes you wonder: had we not beaten Wolves, had we had that. You know, we we couldn't be coming into the game on the back of five defeats in a row and then conceded early. What that would have looked like, um, but it's testament. I think quite a few times this season we've been down and out, and Dash has managed to get the players back up. Dash has managed to get the mentality back on track. Something he's done quite a lot throughout his time in charge, actually, and that was in evidence again. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, and in the away end as well. Even when that goal went in, it, like like I said earlier, you didn't feel the despair, you didn't feel the panic or anything like that. So. Uh, an encouraging sign for for between now and the end of the season, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think it's been 
Um, it's been a tough season all round. I think Dyche himself has, has acknowledged that in, in his pre-match press releases this week. Sorry, his post-match and I guess pre, pre-game for Cardiff press releases this week. He has acknowledged it's probably been the toughest one of his career. Um, and there have been some times this season where he hasn't been able to, to pull those players out of um, a bit of a downward cycle in terms of, of their mental sharpness. But whatever it is that Sean Dyche has on these players is, is just an incredible thing to see. And the fact that they have been able to just get that resilience and that strength and that focus right at the business end of the season when games are running out and we were finding ourselves just two points clear of the relegation zone still with Cardiff to play, especially after that Leicester result as well, which must have just been soul-destroying in that, in that dressing room after that game. It must have just been horrendous. Um, Dave, as we mentioned before, it was a very quick turnaround and, and, and good old Chris Wood jumped up with uh, an absolutely fantastic finish for their goal. I think I mentioned before, um, I think me and Tarkovsky made him a real nuisance of themselves to give himself that space, but that awareness to find just a run round that back out of nowhere and put it into the back of the net was pretty superb. Yeah, it was. And also a really good corner again from uh, Ashley Westwood, wasn't it? We saw at um, Liverpool... Um, he's scored direct from the corner in uh, in that instance, but um, he's him and Dwight McNeil both seem capable this season of um, um, putting the pressure on for corners. We we seem to have um, going back a few seasons. I think it was a running joke, wasn't it? How how long it was since Burnley had actually scored from a corner. Um, this season we seem to do it for for fun. We've done it quite a few times, uh, certainly recently. Um, and Ashley Westwood certainly has the the knack of it, but I think it was it was poor goalkeeping as well from uh, from Begovic in uh, Bournemouth's goal. The ball came across, he, he misjudged it, and uh, Chris Wood was there a couple of yards out, headed it down, and uh, difficult to miss from there. But it was a re- really good move, really good corner, and uh, re- really good for Burnley to uh, to get back into the game. Yeah, it really was. It's interesting that you say that then about Begovic having quite um, a poor game. I think uh, Mepham as well for the second... Is it Mepham or Mepham? I don't know how to pronounce it. Mepham I'm going to go with. Um, He had a a shocker for for the Westwood goal, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, But Dave... It's interesting looking at that Bournemouth side because they were guilty of some terrible, terrible individual errors. And it's not always the case that this Burnley side manages to punish other sides for um, their errors. Look at that Leicester game not so long ago. We, you know, we, we struggled to break down a 10-man um, Leicester side after they had an early sending off. And, and when there's been um, other defensive errors, sometimes we've not quite capitalised on it. But, but you know, it was, it was pleasing to see, wasn't it, on Saturday that we were able to have, find that ruthless streak. Yeah, very much so. I thought that was um, certainly a big part of the game. Burnley, you know, kept their eye on the ball, um, whereas Bournemouth were, yeah, guilty more than once of uh, of wasting chances going forward, but also being uh, uh, rather lax defensively as well. Uh, none more so than uh, for for the, for the goal uh, that that was scored when, uh, well. <laughs> I think most of the, uh, the Bournemouth players and, and the crowd thought the ball had gone out of play, didn't they, on the uh, left touchline. Um, you know, replays show clearly that it, that it hadn't, and it, it shows the importance of playing to the whistle, and the, uh, the Bournemouth players certainly didn't in that instance. The ball came across, and it was, uh, it was a goal for Burnley. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll go on. We'll, we'll have a look at the third goal in, in a minute. I don't want to jump too far ahead just yet. But, um, Tom, 
obviously once we'd got that equaliser back, it just seemed to, like you said before, there was a real directness about their play and there seemed to be a determination that they wanted to get their noses in front as soon as possible. And one thing Dave's just mentioned there is that um, just McNeil, his ability to find those balls in the box. And it was an absolutely fantastic ball, I think, in to, to, to tee up Ashley Westwood for that ball. I mean, it must have been fantastic to see live. Yeah, it was right in, obviously, that left wing that we're attacking down was right in the corner where the away fans are as well. So uh, the first half, all you were seeing was McNeil waltzing past Brooks and Klein every two minutes and whipping a ball over. Uh, it was really difficult for for Klein to deal with. I don't think he got near him once. Uh, he chopped him down near the end uh, of the half and got a yellow. And obviously, like I say, got hooked at half time. So, yeah, brilliant to see him close up in full flow. Uh, as you say, a, a difficult ball to deal with. Um, probably a different team might, uh, maybe uh, Tarkovsky or me, for example, would just put that in the stand if it came near them. See Bournemouth lads try, try and play it out from the back. And that uh, your, your man Meffin's quite a young lad, uh, probably still learning when to play and when to just clear his lines. Uh, and obviously, we took full advantage of that. And I have to say, when uh, when you see the ball uh, trickling back into the area like that, you think we might have a chance. I seen it coming to Westwood and I thought, oh God, this is going in the stand. Uh, it's one of them players, a bit like uh, Tony Grant or Dean Marnie. Uh, never been the most prolific goal scorer from midfield, uh, but he took it superbly, uh, just passed it into the far corner. Really, really good finish. Uh so, yeah, so that was a pleasant surprise. Um, really good goal. And like you said, to get it so soon after the first one as well. Uh, I think uh, we've seen when Eddie Howe was in charge of Burnley, uh, probably not always the most resilient side, um, not always uh, responding well to going behind. So getting two goals in two minutes like that, uh, you could see the Bournemouth heads drop. Um, and from there, really, uh, it was pretty comfortable. Uh, I don't think they, they threatened us too much. So, uh, a really nice goal, a really good time to get it uh, set the tone for the afternoon. Yeah, it really did. I, I was I shared your, your enthusiasm when uh, you were talking about falling to Westwood. I was like, oh God, where's this going? But it's, it's interesting, really. I'd like to see Westwood maybe have a few more chances like that and, and see if he can get a goal. And You know, it's difficult to analyse because a lot of Westwood's game and a lot of the reasons why he's been as impressive as he has this season is just that, engine room that he provides for us in the centre of midfield and just that complete barrier and, and just that strength and I, I think sometimes if if he sacrifices any of that part of his play to try and be a bit more creative and get some more goals then I don't know whether that will leave us a little bit more exposed in the middle but uh, it was certainly nice to see. Um, Robert obviously that takes us up to half time and as Tom said we never really looked back from that we never really looked like we were going to give this lead up um, before we came on air Dave mentioned a couple of um, well one particular penalty shot that we should maybe have had in the early part of the second half a handball um, I forgive me I can't remember which Bournemouth player it was whose hand it hit but it was from an Ashley Barnes strike um, penalty or not to you before we go to Dave and let him decide whether it is or not I, I, <clears throat> sorry, I don't think you can give penalties for those. Um, I, can, I can understand the, the like people appealing for it, but I think after I've seen replays of it, I think you know, his arms down by his side, it's pretty close range. You can't really get out of the way of it. I don't. I, I think if uh, there was a penalty for an opposition team against us, I'd, I'd be absolutely fuming if that was given. So, Dave, I think you were, forgive me, I can't remember whether you said before we came on air or not, whether you thought it was or not, but you, I think your view is that VAR definitely next season will give that as a penalty. 
Uh, yeah, I think that was the point with it was that um, the the referee was actually in a fairly good position position for it. He had a, a reasonably good view. Um, it did happen very quickly, so I think in those instances it, it is difficult to be 100% sure. I think with the VAR coming in next season for the Premier League matches, I think they're going to be ones that are more likely to be given. I'm not saying that that one definitely would be given, but I think we'll see more instances of that type of incident that will end up being resulting in penalties. And I think over time, we'll, God knows how many penalties uh, Crystal Palace are going to end up with because they've had, uh, I think, 10 already this season. Um, Jesus, can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, it's going to happen. I think the, the penalties will become more common in the game because of, um, because of VAR. And I think there'll be more, as I say, more instances like that that will result in uh, the official off the field having multiple replays and deciding to uh, to give penalties, at least in some of the instances, I think. I think that will, uh, will increase the numbers. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. Now, as it turned out, we didn't actually need the penalty because we managed to get our noses even further in front with a, a superb... Good old Ashley Barnes, um, net buster of a, of a goal. Um, Dave, let's stick with you because obviously you you mentioned this just a few minutes ago um, and, and talking about capitalising on errors. Um, Bournemouth just, obviously elaborate on that point now, just Bournemouth fast asleep for that goal and, and really, really poor discipline from them. Yeah, they just switched off. I mean, I think, I can't remember who it was. There's one of their subs who was warming up who sort of half appealed the ball going out. Um, wasn't particularly convincing. He probably had a better view of anyone. Um, the linesman obviously didn't give it. The players who were there switched off. The ball came in. Uh, Begovic fumbled it yet again, and then it was uh, Chris Wood, wasn't it? Managed to pull the ball back, and uh, Ashley Barnes slotted away. And how many times do we see it? Uh, a player who scored an own goal scoring at the other end of the uh, pitch. That actually looked back through the uh, stats. The last Burnley player to score at both ends of the pitch, uh, an own goal and a goal for Burnley, was actually Clark Carlisle. Uh, back in 2009, as a home match against Crystal Palace, he scored at um, both ends in a 4-2 win. You've actually got to go back all the way to 1975. Peter Noble um, scored at both ends. It was a 1-1 draw at Aston Villa. That was October 1975. That's the last time it happened in uh, the top flight where a Burnley sc- uh, player scored at um, both ends of the pitch. And this, in that way, that game, it was the other way around. Peter Noble scored first for Burnley after 50 minutes and then the own goal came... Uh, about 12 minutes from the end. I love having Statman Dave on this podcast. There's a stat for everything. Every point we make, I love it. It's really great. Um, Tom, I just, I love Ashley Barnes anyway, but I I can't help but just squeal with delight when he he scores a goal like that and he turns away with that hand cup to the ear celebration that he does and his his arms moving around him proper. We can't say the name for it because this is a family family problem family-friendly podcast, but you all know the word I'm talking about. It's just a joy to watch, isn't it? It doesn't actually seem to enjoy when he scores, does it? It just seems to be an excuse to uh, to angrily shout at the opposition fans. Uh, no, brilliant on it. It's, uh, it's, he's one of them players that you love him when he's on your team. If you played against you, you'd absolutely hate him. I remember, did he not? I think he, when he was at Brighton before he signed for us, he, he got sent off for stamping on one of our lads. Was it Chris McCann, I think? Uh, so it's one of them players like... Oh, really? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I'm not sure yes, I remember was. that. Yeah, I think it was... Well, they had... Standing. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Two cent off in the first 15 minutes, I think. Yeah, yeah. that definitely happened, yeah. <laughs> so, Excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on, Robbie. You were a bit faint then in the background. It's all right, yeah, yeah. I think it was the second... I think it was the second red card, that one, and I think Gus Poyet had a bit of a meltdown as well for Brighton. 
Oh, is that the game? I do yeah. remember that game. Excellent. Burnley yeah. were terrible that day. Robbie, you don't need to tar that little segment by telling us that we're... Honestly, I'm going to censor you next season for sure. <laughs> like, Burnley were rubbish. Um, so I think, yeah, looking at just looking at Barnes' goals and, and the way he does, I think, Tom, you're absolutely right there. He sometimes doesn't seem to enjoy um, the actual goal itself. He just seems to to enjoy the moment to, um, to annoy the, the away fans. But I think... For me, just the, the whole... I thought two things to mention from that third goal. I think Charlie Taylor was absolutely fantastic. I think he... his Just his strength to... He did play to the whistle. He wasn't, um, I guess... What's the word I'm looking for? Deflected, directed? I can't think of the words. I'm not using my words very well this week. He wasn't in any way um, put off by the appeals for the for the throw-in. He didn't think he'd gone out of play. He just got his head down and just danced around the Bournemouth player and put a superb ball in. And it was just... And I also, as well, I think what, what Tom mentioned earlier, picking up on Chris Wood, um, I thought Chris Wood's sharpness as well shouldn't be underestimated in that goal because he saw that Barnes was free and rather than try and shoot himself, which I, I don't think anybody would have begrudged him the opportunity to do. He is a striker at the end of the day and he had some space to try and shoot himself. He saw straight away that, that Barnes had a much clearer opportunity and just towed it to him. And I just think that the whole team goal for that was was absolutely fantastic. Um Robbie, that's 24 points now of a return since Christmas, since that horrendous Boxing Day fixture, which we seem to have to mention every week, but it seems to be such a benchmark of this season. Um, I think in terms of survival prospects, I mean, that's put us now in 14th place and it puts us above Newcastle, Brighton and Saints before we get into the relegation zone, which which Cardiff's occupying. Um Albeit, I think Brighton and Saints have got games in hand above us. I think Brighton have even got two games in hand on us. But eight points now away from Cardiff. Is that enough? I guess where I'm coming from, if if we lose on Saturday to Cardiff and they win their game in hand, which I think is So we could choose Brighton. Yeah, we could choose it's Brighton, isn't it? That then puts that gap to just two points and we've got that awful four games so let's, I guess, it's obvious, isn't it? Beat Cardiff and it's over and done with. But do we still have some concerns if we lose on Saturday? Yeah, yeah I think so. I think we, um, obviously, the momentum shifts back towards Cardiff and we're back looking over our shoulders again. Um, but I, th- I think Tom mentioned it last week. I think if we do go in, have to go into the last four games needing to pick points up, I actually, I think we actually can. Um I think we, especially the last two, I think either Everton or Arsenal, I do think we can get something against those two, especially when you saw uh, a lot of stats have come out about Arsenal's away form this season. And I think at the final day, if we ever actually needed something, I don't think we would, but if we actually needed it, I think we could actually get something. Yeah, well, let, let's talk through that then, Tom, because obviously you, you, did, you did talk about this last week on the podcast as well. Um I think I think we're all feeling pretty confident that we will beat Cardiff. And I think actually a point's probably still enough as well. I think I don't think a point's a disaster anymore. Um, but do you, do you think we're done yet? Or do you genuinely think that if we lose on Saturday, we're in real trouble still? Uh, I think if you look at Cardiff's remaining fixtures after the players, they've got five left. Uh, two of them are Liverpool at home and Man United away. And you couldn't see them getting anything from them. So realistically, the most points Cardiff are going to get between uh, after the players is nine. 
if it, if we lose, there's five left. We probably need one more win, I think, from somewhere. Uh, and yeah, I think if we go into the Everton away or Arsenal at home, um, knowing we need a win, I think it's we're capable of doing it. Um, like Robbie said, Arsenal's away form really poor. If you saw them against Everton, well, they were absolutely dire. They could have lost by five or six. Probably Everton's a bit more of a worry now. They seem to have picked up a bit of form at the right time. But if you went into that game, two, to, two, two left to play. Everton have got nothing to play for, so that plays into our hands a bit. Um, even Chelsea look a bit shaky. So you don't, if we, if we wanted to go down there, we could maybe even grind out a point down there. Um, but I don't think it'll come to that. I, I don't see us losing uh, on Saturday. I think Cardiff will give us a game. I don't think we'll roll them over by any means. But uh, I think the worst we'll do is a draw. And if we draw eight points clear, like I say, the, realistically, the most Cardiff can get is nine. And then they're going to have to win away at Brighton, away at Fulham and at home to Crystal Palace. And I don't know how many they've won this season, but uh, it can't be more than five or six. So to suggest they'll get three wins out of the last five is probably clutching the straws a little bit for them as well. And if they do beat Brighton away, then that's three points that Brighton aren't getting and they've got a very difficult run in as well. So I would say if if we if we lose, uh, then we're going to need to get a win from somewhere. But I think we can do that. If we get anything out of the game, if we get a draw or we get a win, then I think we can probably start planning for the next season in the Premier League here. Excellent. I knew you'd make me feel better, Tom. I knew, you know what, regular listeners know that I'm a panicker. I always have been a panicker. And until the points are on the board, I'll always be, oh my God, it's not done yet. Um, but yes, you are quite right. You, you look at those fixtures and, and I think the worry is, is that um, Cardiff, you know, you look on paper, you think, well, if they beat us on Saturday and they get wins against Brighton, Fulham and Palace, um, Fulham should be pretty much a, a banker for them. Um, Brighton, they could do, albeit Brighton, are probably slightly stronger than them and as you say also in a relegation battle um, and Palace Palace do look really strong they seem to be finishing this season in, in, in with a bit of a statement of intent as to how they want to, to play next season so I, that won't be an easy game but I think the worst comes to the worst is that they do win those four games that does put them on 40 points and you'd think then well, obviously, we would then need at least four points. I think probably goal difference would do it for us. We'd need we'd need a win and a draw from those remaining games. Um, and like you say, we've got um, United. I'm probably writing off, but we uh, sorry City, not United City. I'm writing off, but the other three we could get those four points from them. But even if Cardiff did manage to get those forty points and we managed to get the three and the one that we needed, that puts either Brighton or Southampton in a whole world of trouble as well because they've also got to try and get past. Uh, they've also got to get another seven points to get above forty as well. So the chances are, even if if it was just between the two of us, I'd be more worried. But if Cardiff do manage to pull out four incredible wins and get to forty points, then that that could very easily mean either Brighton or Southampton going down as well. Um, like you say, we know Cardiff's running, we know ours. A quick reminder of, of Brighton and Saints now. Brighton have got seven games to play left um, and they've got to play Bournemouth at home, Cardiff at home, Wolves away, Spurs away, Newcastle at home, Arsenal away and City at home. Um, so they've not got the easiest of run-ins either. But you probably think, well, Bournemouth were awful, so they you'd think they'd probably pick some points up there. If we're going to assume that they're going to lose to Cardiff because they've won those four games, Wolves away won't be easy, especially if Wolves are now uh, buoyed back. Well, I guess licking their wounds from that FA Cup semi-defeat, they might be pushing for Europe. That'll be difficult. Spurs, Arsenal, City, they might not get anything with, and Newcastle at home. So they could probably only get 
another six points from their remaining games. So that puts all, puts them on 39. Um, and Saints have also got six games left. They've got to play Wolves at home, Newcastle away, Watford away, Bournemouth at home, West Ham away and Huddersfield at home. What Saints have probably got the easiest running out of all of us, I think. So I'm going to, I'm going to say Saints are probably safe. Um, but as Tom rightly says, we, you know, even if we just get a draw on Saturday, a draw or a win, we're completely done. I don't think we need to worry. But um, let's hope to God that next week's podcast, we're not sat here looking at a, a loss against Cardiff and trying to do all of the number crunching and seeing where that gets us. Um, an interesting question that I saw, which I'm going to come to you, Dave. Um, Pat Walton put on Twitter this week, would you accept or would you take a loss against Cardiff if that meant that either Brighton or Saints would go down instead? So he's working on the assumption that Burnley and Cardiff both survive and it's either Brighton or Saints that go down um, and that means that, that Cardiff have to beat us, which was a strange it was a strange question to see put out there, but actually quite an interesting one. Um and I, I'll, I'll give you, see how you feel about this, Dave. I'll give you his rationale behind it. He was basically saying that if Saints go down, they've got an array of talent in their squad that could be available to be purchased in terms of players. Um, Brighton are pretty unpopular. Um, certainly their fans are pretty unpopular um, in the Premier League anyway. Um, and actually, if Cardiff stay up, they probably won't improve that much next season. So should hopefully be a weak team that will go down with, he would hope, Norwich taking up two of those three relegation points. Um, interesting question that I'm going to pose to you then, Dave. What do you think about that? Um, to be honest, look, looking at the table, looking at the games that are left, I don't really see it being anyone other than than Cardiff. I, I think that uh, Cardiff, well, A, I don't think Cardiff are going to catch us. I'm, I'm, I'm com- fairly confident of that. I know we have to play them on Saturday. It's a vital game and it's definitely not a must-win game. It's probably a let's-not-lose game. Um, but even if the worst came to the worst and we did lose to Cardiff, um, they do have a, a tough run. I think for, um, their other games, I think three, three of the other ones, as well as the Burnley game, are away matches. They've only won two of 15 away from home all season. So they are um, they are struggling down there, I think. And I, I think that... Uh, relying on... I mean, the, the bookmakers tend to be very good uh, judges of this, and you look at the odds, I think Bur- you can get odds of something um, like 25-1 to 1 now for Burnley uh, to be relegated. If you were a real pessimist, you want to put £20 on Burnley to be relegated, and uh, if the worst comes to the worst, then it's uh, 500 quid in the bank for a championship season ticket for, for next season. It isn't going to happen. I, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, and I don't think that um, I'd be very surprised if uh, I mean, look, looking at the odds of the other sides around us, um, yeah, Brighton possibly a little bit more in it now. But I, I, I can't see beyond Cardiff. I, I think it's going to be uh, Cardiff, and I thought for some time it's going to be Cardiff taking up that final place. Um, also, going back to Saturday as well, the the, the game at uh, Turf Moor on Saturday. Um, Cardiff are probably going into most games now thinking they have to win them. So. You know, particularly on Saturday, maybe less so in the other game, particularly in that game, um, it's a must-win for them. So they're going to go out and they'll be looking for the win. And I think that Burnley are the sort of side where um, they're, we can sit back and we can take the pressure, we can play on the break, and that might suit us. Cardiff going out for a win, I think that might suit Burnley's type of play on Saturday. So I'm, I'm not contemplating Cardiff catching us and I certainly don't think they're going to catch um, any other teams and I really think it's going to be uh, 
Cardiff who are going to join Huddersfield and Fulham. Although I can, I can see the point in terms of, yeah, if, if a team who is weaker survives, then potentially that's a good thing. And that is perhaps what happened to some extent last season with Huddersfield uh, staying up. And it's, it's proved to be the case this season that they've, um, well, from very early in the season, it looked like they were going to be uh, um, struggling down the bottom and, and that's been the case. But um, I think there are other teams as well. You look down there, you look at the likes of um, Brighton and Southampton surviving this season. They may be the ones next season who, uh, who are going to be in the same sort of position. So, I, I, again, I can't, I can't see beyond Cardiff for that, uh, for that third relegation place, to be honest. Yeah, it's a really good point about Huddersfield, is that, that, that Dave? And I think that's something that maybe I've not fully appreciated just how poor they were going to be this season. It's a bit harsh. You don't want to sort of um, kick kick the poor guys when they're down, but they've been pretty irrelevant of, of Huddersfield this season. It's like if you look back over the course of the season, they've not been in the press. People aren't talking about them. It's not even like people have been particularly interested in their relegation battle they've just been, I think they've probably been one of the most irrelevant sides in Premier League history certainly from what I can remember anyway um there was a good stat as well wasn't it, on that uh, on there Natalie on that um uh, Harry Kane and Jamie Vardy apparently were the joint top scorers at the uh, John Smith Stadium this season as well really is that oh my god you see that do you know what I mean it's just like they've been really poor and they've got to be disappointed the Huddersfield fans and I do kind of look at this and think well if it is us that goes and like you say we we don't think it is now but if it had been us that had gone down at least we went down with a little bit of a fight and it was you know there were other factors that contributed to us going down rather than just not really showing up for the season um Tom one quick comment from you um just before we, we look at the Cardiff game in a little bit more depth and, and look at Dave's head-to-head we've lost Robbie by the way he's had to, to run off and do some work we are recording this Tuesday night as the Champions League is about to start and he is um his big dog today he's going and, and covering some Champions League matches so thanks Robbie see you next week um Tom an interesting dilemma um Bournemouth have been pretty heavily criticized for being just appalling at the weekend and that's not to take away from how good the Burnley side were because I think we made them play badly in a lot of spells but they were particularly dreadful now what that resulted in was the fans leaving the ground and booing the, the players off the pitch which you don't really hear that much of it in the, from the Bournemouth side but I think a lot of the Bournemouth fans are pretty fed up at the moment and they're just bored and one of the reasons why they're bored is that there seems to be a strategy adapted, adopted by Eddie Howe whereby he sets off at 100 miles an hour in any Premier League season with the view to getting the points on the board as quickly as possible. And as soon as survival's pretty much guaranteed, as soon as they get to those 40 points, they're on the beach for the rest of the season. And if you look at their second half performances throughout their Premier League history, and it's just, it is, they've just nothing to play for. And fans seem to be getting pretty bored by that. Now, that raises that old dilemma between Premier League mid-table mediocrity or the excitement, and oh, I use that term loosely, um, of a relegation battle each season with, with one or two like we had last season, just with the, a bonus season of trying to fight for a cup win or a European spot. Um, do, I know this sounds like it might be a really obvious question, but how do you feel about that? Do you think the Bournemouth fans have got a right to be bored given it is an entertainment game? Or can you see 
no merit in that? Do you just think, you know what, you, you get Premier League survival every season, just shut up and put up? It's a funny one, isn't it? Because if you said to a Bournemouth fan 10 years ago when they were looking like they were going to drop out of the league, uh, do you know in 10 years' time you'll be uh, bobbing around the bottom half of the table in the Premier League every year? Uh, they would have, uh, you know, they would have said you were you were mad. Um, and if you take a step back as a Bournemouth fan and say, you know, we're, we're staying up in the Premier League every year on gates of eleven thousand, I know we've got the Russian money and the, obviously the TV money as well. But I mean, historically, this is the best team that Bournemouth have ever had, uh, and it's probably the best team they ever will have. So if you take a step back uh, and and look at it in context like that, it it's hard to see what anyone of a Bournemouth persuasion is complaining about but it's always easy to do that from the outside looking in I think um, and if you're someone who pays a lot of money to go and watch them every week um, and they're having this kind of second half of the season that they are having um, then it just takes on a different complexion um, chatting to some Bournemouth fans uh, the, the day after it, or we stayed over Saturday night so chatting to them in, in town on the Sunday uh, they were all pretty fed up with the, the football that they're watching at the minute, the results that they're getting. Um, it's easy to take a step back and say, yeah, do you know, it's, we're having a good time, uh, take it in context. But when you have to pay money, when you have to sit there and, and live it, and, you know, we're not one of the top teams in the league. Uh, we haven't been in fantastic form this season, but not only did we beat them, we, we gave them a proper slapping, really. We, we played them off the park. So it must be quite, uh, quite, disappointing to say the least uh, when they've had a result like they had last week at Leicester they got rolled over and Eddie Howe said you know we need a reaction we need to give our fans something and then they turn up and they don't get the reaction and they get rolled over again it's 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 really difficult at that moment to to sit back and to take it all in context um so yeah I, I can completely understand where they're coming from I mean similar to us at uh Boxing Day for example, you know, uh, Daesh getting booed. There was a few Daesh out shouts, especially on social media. And if you're a fan of anybody but Burnley and you look at that from the outside and you're thinking, well, this bloke's got into the Premier League, he's keeping you up on a tiny budget, uh, you know, you'd be mad to want rid of him. But when you're watching poor football every week, when you're watching your team lose every week, it's really difficult to have that kind of objective, long lens look at it. It's really difficult to, to have that sort of patience, especially when you spend so much time and money uh, traveling and, and, and watching the games every week especially when you know you build up you work all week and then you go and, and you get disappointed at the weekend I'm sure we all fell out that after the Leicester game uh, another interesting thing I think with the Bournemouth form is the way that you say uh, like you say it's been a real season of two halves for them um, they've had a fantastic first half of the season I think they were still sixth in sort of November and then that's when you start getting this anticipation oh, you know if we can keep this going we could be in Europe next season, you know. We could be we could be pressing the the top six uh, like we did last year, uh, and then you have such a disappointing second half of the season, and, and all that optimism and that you've built up has has dissipated. Whereas, and I think Daesh talked about this when we had the four defeats in a row. If you had sort of put the results for the season as as like a win loss, win loss, win loss, and Bournemouth had been hovering around mid table all season, you haven't got that disappointment because yeah, you haven't had that fast start. So again, if you if you take a step back and and look at the season in, in a full context, then 14th or, or or wherever they finish is is a good result for Bournemouth, and and that's a completely acceptable finish for a club of their size. But if you look at it through the lens of we were sixth in November, 
we had a great opportunity to to do something really special and we haven't been able to to hang on to it then the disappointment kicks in so again looking at it from that perspective uh, if you're a Bournemouth fan who's been traveling up and down the country week in week out if you've seen them get to those heady heights of sixth if you've let yourself get excited I mean I can remember a a November evening in Bournemouth a couple of years ago where we were all singing we're all going on a European tour and it was fantastic and if we'd have come 12th or 13th at the end of that season even though that's a good result for, for a club like ours you would have naturally been disappointed so yeah uh, while it's easy for us to take a step back and say Bournemouth you know you're a small club you should just be delighted to be doing what you're doing every year I've got uh, a lot of sympathy for those fans you know they pay the money every week they travel every week and uh, it it's a lot easier to have a, an objective, cool head about a football club when you don't support them. That's what I'd say. Absolutely. I could not have put it any better myself. That was fantastic stuff, Tom. And I mean, at the end of the day, but Bournemouth, like you mentioned, the, the position that they were in in November, they've had one win in nine now and they've only got 18 points since the start of November. So it really has been um, a long old slog in the second half of the season. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that that balance between putting an objective head on what is fundamentally a subjective subject, i.e. you have your passion for your club and, and a passion doesn't always um, result in a level-headed calmness or a, a reasonable approach to your opinions. And I think that's the beauty of football. And I tend to not get too concerned when people go off on one, especially on social media, because, you know, what can be relevant one week cannot be relevant the week after. It's fast-paced, it's ever-changing, and, and just a couple of results can completely change a landscape. But that shouldn't negate from how you felt at the time and how you believed your club should be run or how you believed your manager should perform in the times when things are going a bit tough. Um, so very quickly then, um, we are running out of time a little bit this week, Dave, but what's um, what's going on next week? Because we've got Cardiff now on Saturday and that. All important, but maybe not as important as it was two weeks ago, game against Cardiff. Hit us up with some head-to-heads. Uh, yeah, looking back over uh, previous matches against Cardiff at Turf Moor, we've played them uh, 20 times. They've visited Turf Moor 20 past occasions. Um, Burnley have a, a fairly good record overall. Uh, we've Sorry, 41 times, 20, 20 wins for Burnley. So he's actually played them, played them quite a lot of times over that period. Um, Burnley have a very good recent record. Um, the last defeat we had uh, was going back to the end of the 1987-88 season. Um, Burnley lost uh, 2-1. It was a bit of a, um, a, a fractious game. Uh, there was trouble towards the end of the game, pitch invasion, police horses on the pitch. Um, and I think the referee actually ended up blowing either, I think it, probably on the final whistle when he should have been adding time on, I think it was one of those where for safety's sake, um, he blew his whistle. There were a couple of late goals, Burnley were a goal behind, uh, Georgia Garney got an equaliser, Cardi scored again, um, I think that's when the uh, the trouble started. Um, and that that was right at the end of the season. I say that probably was the last game of the season. That was uh, with Brian Miller as manager in May 1988. But since then, um, Burnley have got a very good record. We haven't actually um, lost to Cardiff in the time since. We've had um, a lot of draws in there, but we've had uh, six wins, um, and we've had seven uh, draws. All of the last six have been drawn matches which may point to uh, to what's going to happen on Saturday. Uh, when we go back in terms of those draws, we had a, a three-all um, in April 2008. Uh, that was towards the end of Owen Coyle's first season as manager. Uh, that was uh, April 26th, uh, 2008. 
the following season, we had a, a 2-2 draw. Uh, Robbie Blake and Stephen Thompson with the goals. Again, with uh, Owen Coyle as manager, that was the uh, uh, the promotion season via the, uh, the playoffs. Um, and then since then, we've had four further draws, two with Eddie Howe as manager, uh, two 1-1 draws. Um, and then the last two games were both with uh, Sean Dyche as manager, we had a 1-1 draw in April 2013. That was a, a championship game. Uh, David Edgar scored the goal in that one. And then the last time out was April 2016, uh, so not long over three years ago. Um, again, a championship game, and that was a, a nil-nil draw. So, uh, yeah, good, decent record. Cardiff haven't won for 30 years, but a lot of draws in recent matches. Fantastic stuff. And as we all know... The stats on paper don't usually <laughs> follow that that uh, that simply. Um, what taking all that into account, Dave? What's your gut feeling for Saturday? Do you think it's going to be an easy game? Do you think it's going to be a tough game? How do you think the Clarets are going to perform? Um, I think it's going to be one where Cardiff are going to come out of the blocks. I don't think they're going to be cagey about it. I think they're in a position now where they need victories, you know, for draws, well, particularly in this game. Uh, a draw isn't much good to them. Uh, they they need to win the game, so I think that'll uh, affect how they set up and how they play. They're going to probably go for Burnley um, early on, but that I think may play into our hands. I think that might leave some space behind, uh, gives a chance to play on the break, and also I think players like Dwight McNeil might be able to exploit that as well on Saturday. So um, if Burnley can weather the storm, don't concede early on. Um, I think that um, it's going to be. Tough for Cardiff to to get a foothold in the game, and it's going to be tough for them to to get a victory. I think that they've won I think twice away all season in the Premier League out of fifteen uh, games they've played so far. So they don't have the best of records. Looking back, they've won I think one nil at Leicester and two one at Southampton. That's the only away wins they've had so far. So they've not been the best of travellers this season. We know how tough it can be on the road in the Premier League, and they've certainly found that out this season. Um, and four of their last six games are away from home as well. So, um, yeah, re- real tough ask for them. Um, it, it's not going to be straightforward. It ne- never is when there's two teams in there. There's there's always a chance that they're, they're going to get something out of the game. But um, I think Burnley, the, certainly the way we've been playing, we had that little hiccup, didn't we, the four consecutive defeats. We've put two uh, really good wins together back-to-back after that and uh, looking to build on that on Saturday. What about you, Tom? What's your gut feeling for Saturday? Yeah, I think the fact that they've got to come out is going to make a big difference. I think they'll probably come and, and still try and keep it tight and dig in for probably maybe even for the first half. But there's going to be some point at which they're going to have to come out and attack us. And I think we've just got that extra bit of quality. Players like McNeil just to unpick the defence. They're missing Bamber as well, which is a big miss for them at the back. So uh, I think they'll give us a game and I don't think we'll walk it, but I think we're going to nick it, uh, probably sell 1-0 or a 2-1. I will take that. I'd be, I think I'd be quite happy with a point, but uh, certainly three points would just be a huge relief all around Turf Moor and will basically secure Premier League survival for next season. Well, that is all we've got time for this week. We have run over slightly, which uh, apologies if this has eaten into your commuting time, uh, but we did want to we did want to get through all of the points we wanted to talk about this week. Um, so we'll be back next week with a hopefully survival party. Um, I think we're all feeling pretty confident that this is going to be it now and that the Clarets are going to secure another season in the Premier League. 
Um, a few thank yous for this week. Uh, our producer Matt has now gone on holiday this week. I tell you, this none and ever team just keeps disappearing mid-season on these holidays. I tell you, there's no commitment these days. Um, so our standing producer this week is Chris Leap. Um, I'm just going to say thank you, Chris, for helping and uh, editing the podcast and getting it out for us. It's much appreciated. Um, thanks to my panellists, um, obviously regular panellists, Robert Kopak and Stat Man Dave, and special guest and friend of the show, Tom Whitaker. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for being on with me. Um, but our final thanks go to you for downloading and listening to this podcast. Your support is very much appreciated and we would not be here without you. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, have a fantastic win and up the clarets. I've been Natalie Bromley. This has been the None and Never podcast. Until next time. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.